So I, I try not to brown out in recovery and I try to really be present and make that time and make space and, and take time for the people in my life, especially during this time where we're so limited as to who we can contact in person. I think that's really important. This is your Kick-Ass Live podcast, episode number 367 with guest Laura Cathcart-Robbins. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. Well, we're winding down 2020, thank goodness, right? And it has been a wild ride. I actually, as as I'm recording this, I'm excited because I have a few things cooking up for 2021. Obviously, you know that I have a book coming out. It doesn't come out until August of next year, and obviously more on that much later. I also have a freebie that's coming up that's been really a couple of years in the making. It's going to be a podcast. I don't know what you want to call it. It's its own podcast stream. I know that there's a like a better technology word for it, but I don't know. It's not like a completely separate podcast that I'm doing. <laughs> anyway, it's going to be a, a trio of podcast episodes that is just me. I'm going to be flying solo and it's going to live on its own because I wanted you to have something where when you are feeling like you need a kick in the pants, when you are feeling you need some compassion, when you are feeling you need some inspiration, that you have these handful of podcast episodes to go to for just that. They're going to be separated into three kind of, you know, this one's dedicated to if you're feeling really inconsistent in your personal development. This one's for anyone who is feeling like a legend in their own mind and wants to keep feeling that way. So more on that in the new year. Really excited. It's going to cost $0. And also in the new year, in February 2021, Amy Ehlers and I are going to offer our writer's experience, as we call it, the writing experience. We're going to offer that again. It was amazing this year. We had a handful of women who finished their books, who wrote books, who wrote their book proposals, who got in touch with someone who can put their self-published book in bookstores, things like that. So if you want to make sure that you hear about it, in the beginning, when we have early bird pricing, you can head on over to yourkickasslife.com slash write, W-R-I-T-E. All that does is put you on the uh, interest list. So you'll be the first one to get an email saying, hey, it's open. If you want to join us, then you can sign up. All right. That's it for announcements. I am pumped to bring you today's guest. I was introduced to her through a mutual friend and we hit it off immediately. Laura... Robbins is here. And for those of you that don't know her, let me tell you a little bit about her. Laura Cathcart Robbins is a freelance culture writer and host of the popular podcast, 
the only one in the room. She has been active for many years as a speaker and school trustee and is credited for creating the Buckley School's National Recognized Committee on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Her recent articles in the Huffington Post on the subjects of race, recovery, and divorce have garnered her worldwide acclaim. She is a 2018 LA Moth Story Slam winner and currently sits on the advisory board for the San Diego Writers Festival and the Outliers HQ Podcast Festival. So without further ado, here is Laura. Laura, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you. A mutual friend of ours introduced us and and we were laughing before the show because we had to hit record before we spent the entire hour just <laughs> just swapping stories and sharing. And I'm like, wait, I know my audience would would appreciate this so much. And 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 really, I, you know, I have known about you for a few years because hmm. I read the blog post slash article that you wrote that went viral in was it 2016 or 2017? Um, which was it the brave magic post? Yes. Yes. That was 2018 actually. 2018. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm a terrible judge of time. So in 2018, <laughs> a couple years ago, you had an experience that where, where you called yourself, you were the only one in the room and it was at yes. a, a Liz Gilbert, Cheryl Strayed retreat. So can you tell us that, that story of the retreat and, and also what your article was about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I I had uh, been writing for a little while, probably. Well, I mean, uh, I've been writing all my life. I right. had mm-hmm. stopped when I got sober um, because I could not, I, I couldn't access that creative flow anymore. And so I started um, blogging and taking writing classes to try to kind of get my mojo going again mm-hmm. and tap into that creativity. I was really scared that it was gone and. I, I hooked up with these women who were, and we cre- we we formed a writers group. They're all over the country. We, none of us had ever seen each other in person, and this is pre-COVID, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was unusual. But we were just a virtual group, and um, we had decided to meet at this conference, or this three-day retreat, rather, given by Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strayed, who were like besties, and it's called Brave Magic, which is a combination of two of their book titles. It happened to be in California, um, a very short plane ride away from me. So I was really excited to go. This was my first, it was my first trip as an adult mm-hmm. without my kids or oh, a significant fun. other. Yeah. Yeah. I never just, I, I'd gone to a bachelorette party before or two, um, but this was like three days and I was going by myself. I was going to go home by myself. It was, it was really interesting. So I was pretty excited. And and you were going to meet basically like strangers that you met on the internet. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. And I, um, and I want to, I want to say something before you continue for people yeah. who might not know who Liz Gilbert and Cheryl Strait are. Mm. If you knew, if you've read or even heard of the books, Eat, Pray, Love was written by right. Liz Gilbert among many other books. And Cheryl Strait is probably most famous for her book Wild, which was also turned into a movie. Both of those books were turned into movies. So these right. two were hosting a retreat together. Yes, and um, so I, you know, paid my money and rented a car and flew up there. And I mean, I flew up there and then rented the car. <laughs> and uh, I arrived at the facility um, and there were about 200 people in line to check in. And I was like, damn, all right. So I'm really here and I'm going to really have to wait in this line for a long mm-hmm. time. And it was in that line that I started to notice people noticing me which is 
whatever. I'm I'm tall. I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm not that tall, but I'm almost five nine. So that usually sets me apart. But people were staring at me in this way that I was not really used to. And I looked around and I was like, wow, I'm the only black person in this line mm-hmm. of of 200 people. That's unusual. That's yeah. it's me living in Los Angeles, that's unusual odds um, for there to be a gathering of that size and maybe the only black person. And then as the, you know, I checked in and got to my room and went to the cafeteria and every kind of place I went on the campus of 1440 Multiversity, that's where it was, um, including the people that worked there, I was the only black one. And so, you know, three days in, there are 600 people there every day and I'm having this amazing experience of, of enjoying um, you know, what Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strader are, are, are serving to us. It was so fulfilling and nourishing. And I did so much writing that my hand hurt. And, you know, I met so many great people. But I also had this very, at the same time, this very solo experience. Uh, uh, because I was the only Black person there, which is... Is, is just so separating um, on so many levels. And for me particularly was culturally then. There were, there were things said that, um, that did not include me during the retreat. And they weren't, they weren't mean and they weren't um, certainly meant to be exclusive, but they weren't said with that consideration that their audience wasn't all, you know, 35-year-old blonde women, which mm-hmm. was the majority of the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, no shade on 35 year old blonde women, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was, um, but I was there too. And I, I was not, um, considered as, as part of it. It was very obvious by the third day. And, uh, I definitely felt separate from the whole time. Also, like I said, while also enjoying it and also getting so much to take with me and so much, in fact, that when I got home, I wrote about it mm-hmm. and um, I submitted, I wrote an article and submitted it to HuffPost. It was this, this kind of crazy um, serendipitous sequence of events. I, I was joining a writing class. I had to give her a thousand words in order to join, to be accepted. I sent her the article. She sent right back. She's like, you got to get this published. And I didn't, I didn't even know I was going to try to get it published. I was just writing it. And so she gave me a list of names, and at the same time, Emily McCombs from HuffPost Personal posted in the Binders Facebook group, which is, you know, a group for for writers and editors, um, that she was looking for pieces on racism. Uh-huh. And so I submitted it to her on Sunday, and it went live on Monday, and it went viral so quickly. Wow! It was like as soon as she put it live, I started getting DMs. And they continued for 24 hours and until I had almost 600 and there were people all over the world. And I thought they'd all be from black people mm-hmm. and, and probably about 20% of them were maybe 30, but they were from people of all different races and ethnicities and colors and religions and ages and accents. Like, you know, it was just everywhere where people connected with the feeling of, of being othered. And what it was like to have that solo experience, that singleton experience of being the only one in the room. Wow. And and I'm also really curious if Liz or Cheryl or, you know, any of the 
event planners ever responded? Like, or did, or did anything ever change? Yes, yes. Um, the, the people who put the event on, 1440, the facility, 1440 Multiversity, they reached out to me right away. Um, they have offices in New York and um, here in California. And I did um, two, maybe three um, sessions kind of with them mm-hmm. um, so that they could take notes and see what my experience was and see what I, what I recommend for, for changes, um, for the next event or events that they had. And, you know, by the, by, I think it was just two calls. Cause by the third, I was like, look, they better start paying me to consult. I was, that was going to be my next question, Laura. And I'm like, please tell me that they offered to pay you. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I wasn't really equipped, um, to yeah. consult with them at that time. And I do have a really good friend who was, so I referred her to them after the second call and mm-hmm. she ended up working with them. Cheryl, Cheryl Strait had apparently taken a social media break right around the time that the article broke. So when she got back on, she posted a really long post about my article and just kind of saying that, you know, it, it, I won't say it was defensive. It, it, was, it was explanatory. She was explaining what the process was that she and Liz went through. And she definitely expressed remorse that, that my experience had been what it was. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't directed toward me. It was directed toward all the people that were now sending her hate mail. Um, oh, wow. Both of them got a lot of, um, I can't think of what, I guess they got a lot of heat for mm-hmm. it, um, mm-hmm. which was certainly not my intention. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert uh, never reached out to me directly either, but the she was interviewed by The Atlantic. I think it was it wasn't that long ago. It was maybe at the beginning of the summer and the journalist asked her directly about my piece and, and what her thoughts were on it. And so she, she took a few paragraphs to answer. Um, And again, she says kind of the same thing that it wasn't their intention and that they're changing things. And um, I believe that brave magic 2019 was a lot different. I didn't go. Mm -hmm. I think that Jada Pinkett Smith was a part of it. Yeah. Um, And that there were, there were efforts made to bring in more people of color. So that's where it stands yeah. right now. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think, I think, and I'm, I'm making this up. So please tell me if I'm wrong, but you, you, you meant, you mentioned that your article was more than, than what it was at face value that people were emailing you saying, you know, thank you for naming this because I have been the only disabled person in the room. I've been the only woman in the room. I've been the only gay person in the room or, or diff- all kinds of different, um, you know, categories that people, that people identify with. Is that, is that what you got to? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's you, you, you put it so well. Um, I did name it for them. And, and those are, those are the stories that I'm jumping ahead, but those are the stories I tell on my podcast. The only one in the room are mm-hmm. those stories as we wanted a place for those stories to be told because we thought it was so important. Yeah. What do you think your biggest lesson from that whole experience was? I mean, and I'm lumping in the retreat itself and the writing of the article. It may be too many things that I'm asking you to reflect on, <laughs> but what, I mean, now that it's been a couple of years and you, and you can look at it in retrospect, what do you think the, the best thing that you walked away with having learned was? Um. I don't know if if this is the right answer for this, but 
is the first answer that popped into my head. And what, what, what I really feel like I learned in that moment was to, to take advantage of whatever situation I'm in and do my best to use it to kind of amplify my voice and, and further my goals. And, you know, if I hadn't gone to that retreat, I wouldn't have written that article for HuffPost and it wouldn't have turned into, you know, what I have like right now, uh, 12 or 15 articles on HuffPost mm-hmm. and a podcast and speaking engagements. Like none of that would have happened if I had just gotten home and sulked about being the only black person there. Mm-hmm. So using my voice um, to, I, and I hesitate to word, use the word capitalize, but I really did. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I capitalized on my situation by telling the truth about it. Yeah, uh, you know, I and I certainly didn't think, oh, I'm going to parlay this into this, this, and this when I wrote it. Um, but if I if I hadn't done that, and then and then taken each opportunity as it came afterward as an opportunity um, to to do more, to to show more, to be heard by more people, to be read by more people. Um, I wouldn't have been able to move my career in the direction that it's moved. Yeah. I I mean, I, I well, for first and foremost, I think that every time someone tries to act, intentionally parlay something like that, like, here's the thing that's going to go viral, you know, I'm going to write about, and then it never right. does. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but when you look at it as sort of, I, I mean, I believe your intuition was speaking to you and it was something that was from your heart and it was an invitation, if you will, mm-hmm, from the mm-hmm. universe kind of winking at you and saying, here's this really uncomfortable slash crappy experience that you had slash amazing. Yes. And what do you want to do about it? Are you going to, it, it really reminds me of, um, you know, you and I are talking in, in 2020 and the, the vice presidential debate when Kamala Harris said, I'm speaking. I yeah. saw today a woman in a Facebook group that I'm in um, got the words I'm speaking tattooed on her arm. And she was talking about speaking out about her, her sexual abuse. Mm. And, and, and I, I mean, it just gave me goosebumps and, and I just, I love that so much. I want to tattoo it on my body and wear it on a t-shirt and write it in lipstick on my mirrors in my house. And, <laughs> and, and it, I, that's the way I look at it is that you just listen to that invitation and, and I love that with it. Yeah. I, I love, I, you know, my, my beliefs about what else is out there are, are muddled at best, but I, mm-hmm. I do believe in something that I call the divine and I think it's everywhere and I picture it like fairy dust. Um, and I think that I have access to it sometimes. And when I do, um, it is it is that type of thing exactly it'll it'll come in the form of something that maybe i think is something really shitty and then it it turns into this thing that's really an opportunity for me to to either grow it doesn't have to be something like this um where i come away better from it and mm-hmm. and then my divine is like see <laughs> you just had to endure a little bit of that to get this thing this big gift at the end just a little bit. Yes, Just I love that. Bit. I love the yes. divine with a capital D. I'm interrupting this conversation to bring you a quick word from one of our sponsors. You know I'm a huge advocate for therapy and counseling. I've been going myself on and off for the past 28 years. And this year, it's been kind of inconvenient to go and see someone in person. That's why I recently signed up for BetterHelp and wanted to tell you what I love about it. 
BetterHelp will assess your needs by asking you a few quick initial questions online and match you with your own licensed professional therapist so you can start communicating in under 24 hours. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions if you'd rather do that. It's easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional in-person counseling and financial aid is available. There's a broad range of expertise available for things like depression, anxiety, relationship trouble, trauma, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, and anything that you share is always confidential. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener of the show, you get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash kickass. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash kickass. And thank you for supporting our sponsors because that in turn supports this show. How was your voting experience this year? I voted by mail for the first time because our voices matter. Your voice matters, my voice matters, and every eligible voter has a right to make their voice matter. We need to make sure that we are heard by doing things like calling our senators and telling them they need to get back to work and provide emergency funding for USPS and for states to conduct safe and fair elections. Money that was allocated by the House more than three months months ago. We live in a democracy. Demand that your elected officials have the time to count every vote in the 2020 elections. Decision makers nationwide want to make it harder to get every ballot counted and voice heard. Don't let this stop you from taking a stand to protect your voting and civil rights. They will not silence us. Visit andstillivote.org to call your elected officials today to make sure every vote is counted. That's andstillivote.org, paid for by the Leadership Conference Education Fund. And I thank you for supporting our sponsors because that in turn supports this show. And now back to the conversation. You mentioned earlier that you got sober and, yeah, I did. and that's when you stopped writing. And I, I know that you talk openly about your recovery and, and being a mother in recovery. So can you yes. tell us, can you give us like the five minute version of, of what led to your recovery? <laughs> oh, what led to my recovery. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. Cause um, I could, we could be here all day. <laughs> right? um, well, the five minute version of what led to my recovery was I had um, file for divorce because I thought he was the problem. And I had two little kids, um, two sons. I, I still have them, but they're not little anymore. Um, but they were they were eight and nine at the time. And um, I was really afraid to lose them. And I got to a point where I was taking as many pills as I'd always taken and drinking as much vodka as I'd always drank, drank, drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, I never know which it is. Imbibed, (laughs) (laughs) and I was. It wasn't working, and I was so scared of what was next for me because I was really close to putting fatal doses of of each of those things in my body on a nightly basis. Really close to you know just not waking up the next morning and having my kids finding me dead, Mm -hmm. and I did not want to get sober, but I didn't want to go down that path. So I decided to um, intervene on myself and 
get myself into treatment so that I could, hoping like the cessation would allow me to take what I wanted to take normally. And that's in air quotes. So you wanted to learn how to moderate. I did want to learn how to moderate um, and to hide it better. Yes, <laughs> which is like the learn. addict fantasy. <laughs> yes. <I'm with> you. <laughs> um, so that is that is why I checked into treatment on um, July 14th, 2008. When I checked out on August 14th, 2008, which is the date that I consider to be my sobriety date because I just really, they detoxed me. I was on, you know, just heavy amounts of drugs. It was an 11 day or 12 day detox. I'm not sure which one. So I just counted as the day that I left is my sobriety date. Um, and I, I've stayed sober since then. Um, but certainly not because I intended to going in mm-hmm. each day has been like, wow, I'm really still sober. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Was there a moment where I have a couple of questions, but, yeah. but well, yeah, let me ask this one. Was there a moment where you realized, cause you went in thinking, okay, I'm going to check into this treatment and I'm going to learn how to take medication normally and drink like mm-hmm. a normal person. And, and was there a moment where you realized, oh shit, like I, I can't, like I need to actually completely abstain? Not when I was in treatment. No, I okay. I'd actually, you know how, um, you may not know this, but when you're leaving treatment after you've done your, your stint there, there's like a couple days where you get to use the phone as much as you want to make arrangements for when you get out. Mm-hmm. And I spent that time calling all the pharmacies. <laughs> I thought I might have mm-hmm. refills. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been there, but I, as an addict, I would feel yeah. like that's completely reasonable. Yeah. Thought process. It was totally out. reasonable. I had a lot less than I thought I did, mm-hmm. but I got one of them transferred to Wickenburg, Arizona. I went to the Meadows for treatment, which is in Wickenburg. Mm-hmm. There's only like six things in Wickenburg. Um, and one of them is a stoplight. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Lots of and roads. one of them is a CVS, miraculously. <laughs> and so I um I got my prescription transferred there and I had every intention of getting in my town car after the driver picked me up and stopping by there and getting my refill on the way to the airport. But I didn't. But you didn't. I, I the reason I didn't is not because I was virtuous. <laughs> I didn't because I met this gentleman um, in in treatment named Scott, who is um, my boyfriend now, still 12 years, 12 plus years later. And um, we were not a rehab hookup, but we had met during that time there. And we checked in an hour apart from each other and we were able to leave at the same time. And I had offered him a ride to the airport, forgetting that I was going to have to stop and get these pills. And I didn't, he was so serious about getting sober it was almost annoying how serious uh-huh. he was. And I was, I was embarrassed, honestly, to stop and, and relapse in front mm-hmm. of him. Mm-hmm. So I, I passed that CVS and in my head, I'm thinking, I'll just get it transferred again. Once I get to the airport back to LA. Mm-hmm. So I didn't stop and um, I didn't get it transferred and I got home and, you know, it, it was a shit show at home. It was terrible. That was like, Going to treatment was terrible. Coming home was way worse for me. It was reentry. It was, ugh. Mm-hmm. I I was so anxious and bereft, and I didn't know what to do with my hands. I didn't know how to talk to my kids. I didn't know how to look people in the eye. Still, you know, and I I did. I just 
I couldn't go in my bedroom because I was, you know, he'd be, maybe he's going to think I'm using again if I go in there during the day and I didn't know where to go in the house. And I finally ended up going to 12-step meetings just so that I could do something mm-hmm. and and not be, not look weird because yeah. I felt like I looked so weird to anybody that knew me before. That's so interesting. Thanks for sharing that just very transparent feeling and thought process of of what it's like to be newly sober. And I think even people who don't have a low bottom or don't even really identify with, you know, being an addict or an alcoholic and all these labels that we put on it, Mm -hmm. when they decide to abstain, it can feel like that. Like, I don't know who I am anymore if I'm not... Mm -hmm at least trying to get a little buzz. And that to to me, what you're talking about points to how I always talk about, I was always trying to run away from my life by Mm -hmm. either getting into a relationship or chasing a man or um, severe codependence or drinking or restricting calories and, or over-exercising was another one I love to do. And it wasn't that I hated my life. It was just that I really disliked my life sober. Like I really Mm -hmm. disliked, I hated looking at my feelings. I hated looking at hard conversations. I hated looking at the shadow sides of myself, of my relationships. That's what I was trying to run away from. Yes. Well, and it's, and it's what we talked about um, earlier before when we were just chit-chatting before we started, but that attempt at control, mm-hmm. you know, I, so I can't, I can't, I can't control how I, I can't get high anymore. You know, I can't get drunk anymore, but I got to be able to control something about the way that I feel. Yeah. And I, I do that with everything. I really do. And it's, it's so easy for me to slip into it. And it's really important for me. That's just, you know, for me personally to check myself on that because I don't like how I am, not who I am, but how I am when I'm engaged in that type of behavior. It's unsettling for me. And I like my serenity a lot, a lot, a lot. Same. And and sometimes I feel like me and serenity have a street fight. And, <laughs> and I... The control thing, which I know a lot of people listening can relate to, and, and you you mentioned something earlier when you were in the car with your not yet boyfriend, but soon to be boyfriend guy you met yes. at rehab. <laughs> Scott yes. he has a name. Scott. Scott S four one two. Scott. Um, and you were trying to, you know, you wanted to go to CVS to get the refill, mm-hmm. but you didn't want to, you know, he was very serious about his recovery and and you said you were embarrassed. And and as someone who who teaches shame resilience, I, I don't like to put feelings in people's mouths, but to me that points yes. to shame because sure. we are so Shame, one of the elicitors of shame is being perceived by others in a dark-ish way, like the way we would never want to be perceived by someone else. And for you, if I may, it sounds like you didn't want to be perceived as an addict. You didn't want to be perceived Mm -hmm. as somebody who couldn't stay sober. And that is that can feel crippling. Like, I I don't know, was that the experience for you? Absolutely. I mean, that was, you just, that you just, that's my whole life. I, you know, it, the the reason that I was able to to kind of stay out of treatment for as long as I did prior to going was that I really, really, truly, out of almost anybody I know, lived that double life. 
And I, underneath my fronting, because I was the parent association president at my kid's school, when I went to treatment, I'd just been asked to join the board of trustees. I had planned the gala that year, and I was really involved. And everybody was floored when mm-hmm. I went. Like I, no one, no one hard. suspected, right? I, you know, I, I heard you say on a podcast on one of your episodes, I think that um, you you just referred to that time in your life when you were drinking as your drinking career. Mm-hmm. And then you said it's because it was a full-time job. And I just love that. And that's exactly what it was. I it was I had space for nothing else but to fool everybody into thinking that I was I was not just okay, but I was amazing. Mm-hmm. Like I could you they could give me anything. Anybody could call me and say, Can you pick up my kid? Can you pick up this from the store? Can you arrange this gathering for so-and-so? And I'm on it. Yeah. I would do everything. And underneath that was like this gurgling swamp of shame. Mm-hmm. And I was so scared that somebody might like peek behind the curtain and be like, yo, what's all this? <laughs> yeah, the gig is <laughs> this, up. This doesn't look mm-hmm. good at all. Yeah. It's like under the bed. Yeah. Like you yes. shoved everything. My Yeah. I, I won't say totally. which child, but one of my children likes to clean their room by <laughs> shoving yeah. everything under the bed. But yeah, same. I, I felt like the more that I drank, the more that my perfectionism and overachieving, it was in direct correlation of each other. Um, mm-hmm. And that was not sustainable. And, and right. for me, that's when I, that's when I decided that I needed, I needed help. I, my, the other question I wanted to ask you was you, you started out telling your story saying, you know, you drank, as, drank as much vodka and took as many pills as you, you wanted to. And, and I know that for people like us, we don't just wake up one day and start doing that. So what, what did the progression look like? Did you start out as a teenager? Did you like, what, what else was going on in terms of behaviors that led up to that, to, to those days? You know, I, I, I certainly did drink as a teenager, well, okay. <laughs> I know like you're going to back around. up even more. I never, I never liked the taste of alcohol. I hated mm-hmm. it, hated it. So as a teenager, when everybody was drinking, I would actually be the one that would pretend to sip from my beer and then I would dump it. I just didn't get it. I didn't like mm-hmm. it at all. It was probably in my, my mid to late 20s when I found a couple of drinks that I liked and I could actually drink the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I you're really, my age. Was it Zima? Was this the 90s? <laughs> Zima, or wine oh my coolers? God, it was the 90s. Um, <laughs> no, I had this thing called, I drank this stuff called Tuwaka. No one okay, ever knows what know it that. is. Yeah, exactly. It's like this really potent vanilla flavored Italian liqueur. Oh, okay. It was delicious. We used to drink a lot of Boone's Farm <laughs> Strawberry Hill. That was, okay. that was something. Yikes. <laughs> That's something there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I found a couple of things. I also liked it's uh, it's like um, sambuca. Oh, okay, like I've that, heard of that. That, that yeah. kind of licorice flavored. Okay, yeah, so I you like you found too. some sweet stuff and some sweet stuff that I, that I could tolerate and that could work. And then, cause I, but I was I really wanted to be a part of what they were experiencing. I hated weed. I hated uh-huh. smoking weed. I tried it a couple times. Didn't like it. Pills hadn't entered my life yet. I didn't really know about pills and. I had been given pills once for a shoulder surgery uh, when I was 27 and hated them, flushed them. Oh my mm-hmm. God, I hate the way they made me feel. And then um, in my 30s, so after my kids were born, I felt much differently <laughs> about them mm-hmm. <laughs> all of a sudden. And um, 
whenever they were prescribed to me, I was like fiending for them. And I didn't know what it changed, but I was like, why did I not like them before? These are great. Not only do they kill whatever physical pain I'm dealing with, but they just make me feel good. They take away the emotional pain Mm -hmm. and they worked better with booze for me. Yeah. Um, So that became my, you know, uh, treat, you know, maybe once every two weeks, maybe once every weekend, maybe three times a week. And then it went like that. It was that Hemingway quote gradually. And then suddenly, mm-hmm. and it really was gradual for me. Um, when my kids were little, I don't remember drinking alcoholically, little, little, like two, yeah. three, four. But once they hit like age five, all I remember is hiding it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and trying to be their mom too, at the same time, which is that's probably, honestly, that was probably my batting order, which is not something I'm proud of. But it was yeah. probably the booze and drugs first and then being a good mom. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that I think if you don't experience it, I remember when I was in recovery early on and I really wanted my husband to be as excited about my milestones as I mm, was yeah, and he wasn't. And, and somebody in the rooms of recovery said to me, he probably won't understand ever because he's not one, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and we'll always have a parade for you, but you kind of need to accept it. And so it, that was super helpful. And I told him that, and, and, and actually it helped him be more, excited for me and congratulate mm. me on my milestones. And, and he is proud of me, but I, it, it's one of those things where it's tricky to explain to someone around the topic of motherhood mm-hmm. that it's, um, you know, I remember when early on in recovery, there was a woman who I heard her story where she had lost her children. You know, she had, her bottom was so low and she had lost custody of them and she was working mm-hmm. on getting them back. And I remember judging that and thinking that would never be me. Right. And then one day I was about to relapse and I was crying and I had one hand on the phone and one hand on a bottle of wine and I had to make a choice, you know, like, am I going to call someone, which I know that they're going to talk me out of drinking, but mm-hmm. I did not want that. I wanted to drink. And, you know, what was I going to do in that moment? And my kids were in the bathtub and I could hear them. They were only like 20 feet away from me. I could hear them playing in there. And it was it was one of those moments that's sort of like, you know, a snapshot. And I remember hearing them and then thinking of that woman in recovery. And I'm I thought to myself, like, I'm no better than she is. I'm not smarter. I don't have more willpower. I, yeah. you know, I'm not a better human than her. Like we have the same thing going on in our brains. Mm-hmm. And that could very well be me. So I all of that to say. I think it's and, and I, I would like to pose this question to you because I find it complicated to explain to people about motherhood and how well, exactly what you just said, like putting the addiction before our kids. It's tricky. How, how do you have any better words than I have just stumbled over them? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, first of all, that, that picture is really like, that's stunning. I can, it's cinematic. I can see mm-hmm. you. I can hear your kids in the bathtub. I can, see how heavy that phone is and how light that bottle of wine would feel. Right. It's Mm -hmm, just like, mm -hmm. I I do have a story that I tell and it's a, it's a story that starts with my mom. Um, It's really, it's not very long, but my mom is a, she hikes and she hikes with this forest ranger and he was explaining to her once after 
while they were hiking that after a forest fire, his job is to go in and, and kind of rescue any animals that might need rescuing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he talks about walking into this like still smoldering forest and happening upon this, this, this female hawk. And she, her wings are spread against the forest floor and she's petrified. She's been burned to death. And he's so struck by this and he like very carefully, gingerly scoops up, you know, her body and lifting her wings. And as he does so, he hears the cries of the three live baby hawks behind her. Oh my gosh. And I flooded with tears when my mom told me the story. I'm I'm doing it right now because I understood what that was. Mm-hmm. She burned to death for her babies. That is maternal instinct. Yep. She didn't give it a thought. It was the thing that she had to do to protect them, even if it meant sacrificing herself. I have that. I have that maternal instinct. It is that strong. It is that powerful. And in that moment, I realized that even though I have that, there is something more powerful than that instinct in me. And that is my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. That's fucking powerful if it overpowers my maternal instinct. And I didn't ask for it. I don't know how I got it. I don't know why it stayed around, but I have this thing. So I had to find something bigger than my alcoholism to treat it. Bigger than my maternal instinct. You know, my alcoholism is bigger than my maternal instinct. I had to find something that was bigger than my alcoholism so that I could get back to that maternal instinct. So that's the story I use. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you. What a, oh God, I could see that hawk and just spreading her wings to protect her babies. And yes, yes, that's what it feels like. It feels like this thing that's bigger than me. And, Mm -hmm. and I remember being infuriated by this sort of, you know, speaking of street fights, like the, the, the wanting to drink and also wanting to quit and not be that mom and be totally present for my children and be present for my life and my marriage and my, mm-hmm. my business and all of these things. And, and like you said at the beginning of our conversation, I didn't want to get sober, but I also right. didn't want to, <laughs> to, to continue down the path I was going. And, yeah. and I always tell people who are in that position where they're thinking about it or struggling with it is I say, you have to get to that tipping point where the fear of trying sobriety is just a little bit less than your mm-hmm. fear of continuing down the path that you're you're going on. Um, and, and everybody has a different pain tolerance. I don't know what that is yeah. for everyone else. I just knew what mine was. And um, I, I personally was just plain exhausted. I was exhausted from running away from my life. I was yeah. exhausted from the physical hangovers. I was exhausted from obsessing about booze, just all Mm -hmm. of it. I just was tired and I wanted to rest. And um, I wanted to ask you one more question before we wrap up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously 2020 has been a year and I, I want to ask you, what would you say to women listening this, you know, whether they're, they're in recovery or not? Cause I I do believe we're all in recovery from something. Anyone who Mm -hmm. listens to a a podcast about personal development, (laughs) you're recovering from something, whether it's, you know, childhood trauma or just life or just Mm -hmm. 2020 and who are kind of trying to maneuver through everything life is dealing, dealing them. Like, what would you, what would you want to say to them? Oh boy. Well, like you said, this has been a a really, uh, I mean, Every day of this year has brought something new. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and most of it hasn't, hasn't been something that lifts me up or fills me up or is helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> in, on the surface anyway. You know, those terrible platitudes that they have in 12-step recovery that one day at a time has been really helpful for me is actually this that's been really helpful for me my whole recovery not the one day at a time part but the just to try to stay where I am in that moment I you know I Scott and I aren't married for a variety of reasons but one of them is I don't want to think too long about the, I don't want to think too far into the future mm-hmm. not to say that I don't want to be responsible and I I don't make the plans that I need to make like financially and that kind of stuff but I don't want to I don't want to go too far and get hopes pinned on the future. I really try to put my energy into where I am at at you know at this moment in this day. Mm-hmm. You know what what how generous can I be this today? How curious can I be about somebody else today? You know, how can I enrich someone else's life today? How can I enrich my own life today in this moment, not in the future? Mm-hmm. And that's been super helpful to me. I also have had to really um kind of parse out and that's not the right word i've had to 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 monitor how much i'm i'm taking in um either via the news or social media i've been regulating that a lot and and taking in very little because it disturbs me it it takes me off my emotional axis and um that that's the kind of stuff that makes me need something and like I said, I haven't thought about drinking or having a drug in a really long time, but I can certainly need something else. And for me, that need might be to control or, or, or be perfect, you know, in, in some way, with someone, in something, which is a setup for disappointment and failure for me, mm-hmm. uh, especially if I'm trying to control someone else, um, which is almost always the case. Right. <laughs> so, um I know that's a really long-winded answer, but that that idea of staying present, my two biggest gifts that I took from the meadows, which I use every day, are like I chant them, My and I don't really chant. I don't have a mantra, but I think about how generous can I be? How curious can I be? Generosity and curiosity. Mm-hmm. Those are the things I ask for. Um, those are the things that you know allow me to turn toward humility. Um, instead of humiliation or instead of grandiosity and right, um, right? which sometimes <laughs> seems like such the easiest fastest path right <laughs> yes yes and um and and the amazing thing is that i i really i you know not only cuz like in in sobriety i can i can brown out i can be so tunnel visioned and focused on one thing and forget that my kids came in 10 times asking me a question or looking for something or that my boyfriend, you know, was kind of wandering around waiting for me to pay attention to him. And by the end of the day, I will have realized that I really made a lot of progress in the thing that I was focused on, which is usually writing. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of let go of those human relationships that I really worked hard to get sober for. So I, I try not to brown out in recovery and I try to really be present and make that time and make space. Um, and, and take time for the people in my life, especially during this time where we're so limited as to who we can contact in person. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. I love that answer. And I, I think sometimes when we are in these really complicated times, which we are right now, going back to the basics of 
you know, being present, what can you focus on? What can you focus on right now is incredibly helpful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So where can people find you? I know you have a podcast and we'll put all these links in the show notes, but do you like people to come and say hi on Instagram or where can they, where can they get more of you? Yes. Thank you for that. Um, the easiest way to find everything is at the only one pod.com. All my writings are there. The podcast is there. All my appearances, everything is all in one place, but I do love Instagram. Um, Actually, it's not true. I don't love it, but I, I do like people to come find me on Instagram. You kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. And that's Laura Cathcart Robbins. So that's L-A-U-R-A-C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at, I'm sorry, it's the other way, at Laura Cathcart The at symbol, yeah. yeah. Um, and then at Laura C. Robbins on Twitter and Laura Cathcart Robbins on Facebook. Got it. Yes. And all those links will be in the show notes. You are a wordsmith, both in your writing and your speaking. I I love that you're probably like me obsessed with words and I so appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you. Everyone, thank you for listening. You know, I, I value your time and remember everyone, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye-bye. 